Today on Ag News Daily. Buying the crickets was the first step. After that, it was figuring out what what I was going to do with them. Because I don't know about you, but up until two years ago, I didn't know how to cook crickets very well. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you from Galesburg, Illinois, the confraternity of the Midwest Bank of Western Illinois, joined by Delaney Howell, who is the closest she has been to me to record the podcast in several months. Delaney, what are you up to today? Okay, well, to be honest, I'm not sure right now if I'm currently sitting in Illinois or Iowa, but I was in Carthage, Illinois. There's a big river between the two, okay. Delaney. If you have oh, you crossed okay. a big river. Then yes, I'm in I'm in Iowa now officially. Just barely. Just barely in Iowa looking at Illinois across the way. But I was in Carthage, Illinois this morning speaking to Marine Bank, their annual bank meeting for all of their ag folks, talking about what's happening in agriculture, Mike. What about you? Same story, different bank up here for uh, down here, over here, I should say, for Midwestern Bank of Western Illinois. Spoke with them at their uh, headquarters there in Monmouth earlier today. And I tell you what, Delaney, I was uh, I was glad to hear that producers in this part of the state definitely struggled in 2019. Not Mm -hmm. not glad to hear that, I should say, but glad that um, as far as struggles go, a lot of folks around here were able to get their corn out more or less when they'd anticipated. Harvest was wet, but it wasn't catastrophically wet. Uh, crop conditions in the bin appear to be tough, but again, not catastrophic. So as far as marketing goes, looking down the barrel of the rest of this spring, there's more flexibility for the growers in this part of Illinois than I was expecting. And uh, because of that, there's more optimism. So we had a delicious lunch, a lot of great conversations, and uh, definitely got the chance to look ahead at what 2020 might look like. Yeah, that's a very similar conversation then to what I had with folks here in Carthage, Illinois, Mike. Well, I want to talk about something, Delaney, as we kick off the news that we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about. In fact, uh, my apologies to our Canadian listeners. Uh, This is something that has been skating underneath my radar, but it has certainly had an impact on basis in Canada. And this is the ongoing blockade of Canadian rail lines. This got started here, I believe it was about a month ago. Uh, yeah, during January, so about a month and a half ago, as a gas pipeline was scheduled to move through some British Columbian First Peoples land. Uh, you know, down here in the States, we'd call it a reservation and uh, native ground. And the uh, the natives were the first people, as they call it up in Canada, were effective in stopping this pipeline, or at least stopping it so far, as uh, as a matter of protest. Since they stopped, remember this is out in British Columbia on the far western side of Canada, a lot of supporters across the country have come out and are trying to put pressure on the Canadian government to really roll this gas pipeline back. And they've chosen to block rail lines as their way of putting pressure on the government. This has frustrated a lot of shippers of goods and primarily in the southern tier of Canada, that means agricultural goods, as these trains have been stopped and police have not been active in removing the protesters. Um, I'm sure our friends in Canada know the stories, but the police are looking back at two events, one in 1991 and 1995, when uh, clashes between First Nations and police turned deadly, and they don't want to repeat that. So they are being very cautious in how they approach these protests. And in the meantime, rail lines continue to be stalled across the country. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And 
I think a couple of folks have shared it now on Twitter, but definitely a concern for Canadian folks up there trying to get product shipped back and forth. I think, though, I would like to add, I think, Mike, this has primarily affected folks traveling on train for a way of commun or for a way of transportation, not as much for agricultural and, you know, manufactured goods. Ah, okay. Good to know. I hadn't seen that part of it, but uh, that would make sense. If you're going to impact somebody, impacting travel is going to be a lot more meaningful for a larger number of people right. than impacting grain shipments. Absolutely. But I think it is still impacting grain shipments as well. So I'm glad you brought that up. Another big thing going on this week that we have mentioned on the podcast is the USDA's annual Ag Outlook Forum, which is going on right now out on the East Coast. I believe it's actually going on in Virginia, not in D.C. But Secretary Purdue has made some headlines today, Mike, on a couple of different fronts, the first of which is acreage numbers. We saw last week the USDA released their early estimates for acreage, and we've seen them already as of today adjust those numbers again. Secretary Purdue came out and said, we're actually going to see about 94 million acres of corn and about 85 million acres of soybeans. He also... So he increased the bean acreage over yesterday's yep. prelim. Was that, uh, was that the result? That okay. was it, and dropped corn acres down just a half a million. Okay, gotcha. So, what else are they coming out of uh, there from Outlook? The other thing that apparently has uh, made some ripple effects today, and it's two pieces of news that are kind of tied closely in hand, but looking at environmental issues. We saw mm -hmm. this morning Secretary Purdue announced that he's calling for agriculture to cut our environmental footprint in half by 2050. And... At the same time, we're also expected to increase our agricultural production by 40% because we've got to feed that huge population coming by 2050. And so he said the way we're going to do this is by first starting a carbon pricing program, which would encourage farmers to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, also putting in place an incentive, a actual cash incentive, so that farmers take initiative and work on carbon sequestration themselves. Then, ahead of Purdue's announcement, we actually saw kind of the first coalition of its form, a coalition of farm groups, uh, which is called the Farmers for, Sustainable, for a Sustainable Future, which includes American Farm Bureau Federation, National Farmers Union, and National Council of Farm Cooperatives, which is kind of interesting, I think, to see all three of those groups come to one table. But we saw them come out just today saying that they've created a new coalition to try and entice farmers to address climate change on their own farms. It's a voluntary organization, not required by any means, but they said they want to engage farmers, open this conversation up, this dialogue up early, and it goes really hand-in-hand -hand with what Secretary Purdue is saying and getting that cut down by 2050. Interesting. So there was some additional news that came out. I think it was in regards to the same environmental uh, movement, but the USDA said they want to shoot for a 30% biofuel goal by 2050. This was surprising to hear coming out of this administration in particular. Um, this is a USDA push. USDA, as a lot of our listeners know, aren't in charge of the biofuel programs, of course, that is EPA. And there is some concern that perhaps the EPA 
isn't as on board with the move towards 30% biofuel as the USDA might be. Uh, EPA, of course, is the one that has been granting all of these small refinery exemptions that have cut biofuel from the 10% target that we currently have in place. So this was reassuring to hear. It'll be interesting to see how the USDA decides, excuse me, EPA decides to play their future cards now that they're aware that the Trump administration is shooting for a 30% biofuel goal again by 2050, which is well after uh, Trump will no longer be president. So, of course, this could be rolled back by any future president. But um, it does appear to be part of a longer term restructuring by USDA to focus on environmental sustainability Mm -hmm. and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. All right. Well, sounds like the concern for the environment isn't really anything going away anytime soon, Mike. No, and that's good. You know, we want to have a planet. We want to have fresh air. We want to have clean water. The the difference is how do we get to those things? And, you know, as we talked about with Megan Dwyer just a few days ago, there are voluntary, voluntary ways to get to those things, and there are regulatory legal ways to get to those things. And from the growers I speak with, I know a lot of them would like to keep it voluntary. It's interesting that we're talking about focusing on the environment because we also saw kind of an odd combination of partnerships, I will say this. We saw PETA advising the EPA. I never thought I would see those two names going hand in hand as a partnership, but apparently PETA, which of course we all know is not the people for eating tasty animals, but the people for the ethical treatment of animals are working with the EPA very closely to develop new guidance for testing the impact of pesticides on birds. Essentially, they're Mm. telling the EPA that if a pesticide is safe to use and has, has studies shown that it's safe to use based on public health and environmental safety, it's also safe to use on testing on birds and other animal species. But I just thought that headline alone that EPA and PETA were working together was an interesting group of bedfellows I never thought would happen. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see that one coming either. Um, (laughs) Well, especially the EPA under this administration. You know, the the Trump administration hasn't been super fond of environmental whack jobs like those at PETA. And I'm not pulling any punches. That is what they are. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes, it is. You know, another thing that's interesting, well, Mike, is our interview coming up. What other news do you have for today before we get to that? Well, I just have one other piece of news, and it has definitely had some far-reaching impact on market prices today. Um, last night, as uh, the clock was rolling over while a lot of Americans were watching the crazy Democratic debate going on in Las Vegas, it was being announced by several Asian countries that coronavirus is still a thing. Uh, South Korea reported a few additional deaths. Japan reported additional cases. Uh, There was some trickling news out of Beijing that 36 new cases, and worrisomely in the case of Beijing, these were cases amongst hospital workers um, have contracted coronavirus. That caused the market last night, the financial markets in particular, the uh, not financial markets, but the currency markets in particular, to go, whoa, coronavirus, still very much a part of our concern. We saw a huge sell-off in Asian currencies and a lot of strength returned to the U.S. dollar. In fact, last night, the U.S. dollar spiked from 98 and change on the U.S. dollar index 
up to 99.7, which is the highest it has been in about 18 months. And of course, the stronger the U.S. dollar, the harder it is for export partners to buy U.S. goods or the more expensive it is to purchase U.S. goods by foreigners. So that is definitely a contributing factor to the downturn we saw in commodity prices to date. Okay. Well, speaking of commodity prices, Mike, why don't you walk us through those? But I've got to say, our interview really is fantastic today, looking at crickets as a means of diversifying your operation. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. You did not have your seed meters checked and calibrated on your 10-row planter. All seemed good last season. You will be planting corn on 1,000 acres. The population is set for 36,000 per acre, but when the crop emerges, you see that one row has many skips and another has many doubles. Consider this. Two rows on a 10-row plant are not working correctly is 20% of 1,000 acres or 200 acres. A plant population count finds that instead of 36,000, the faulty row units are putting down 30,000 or 17% less seed. Assuming the same yield per 1,000 seeds, 20% of your ground will yield 17% less crop. The loss may be hard to calculate in bushels, but when you look at your bank account, it will become glaring. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. All right, folks, well, stay tuned for that interview. In the meantime, excuse me, we'll rip off this Band-Aid and see what happened in the grain markets. Folks, we were red in pretty much all classes of grain earlier today, mostly on that uh, currency concern that I mentioned earlier. Looking at corn, the March corn contract down two cents. Remember, options expiration is tomorrow, so we will quickly be moving into the May as the front month contract. But for today, March was down two cents at 378.5. The May was down two and a half to close at 382 and three quarters. Soybeans also lower on the day. The March was down four and a half cents at 892 and three quarters. The May down four and a half as well, finished at 901 even. Wheat down and down bigger than corn in soybeans. The March contract dropped five and a quarter cents at 560 even. The May down three and a quarter to finish at 559 and a quarter. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got weakness in live cattle. The April contract dropped a dollar sixty-five at one nineteen fifteen. June down a dollar thirty-seven fifty to close at one ten ninety-two half. In feeder cattle, the April was down fifty cents at one forty-two fifty-two fifty. The May down eighty, closing at one forty-three fifty-seven fifty. And in lean hogs, weakness not nearly as bad as cattle. The April contract dropped seventy cents to finish at sixty-six eighty-seven fifty. The May down eighty-two and a half, closing at seventy-four. 47 half. Looking over at the world of dairy in class three milk that February contract bounced up three cents to close at $17 even, while the March was down eight, wrapping it up at $16.69. Without further ado, Delaney, we're talking crickets, but with whom are we talking crickets for today's interview? We're talking with Shelby Smith, owner of Jiminy Crickets out of Ames, Iowa. Well, talking about diversification in agriculture, we are joined by a guest who is really testing the limits of diversity in agriculture. Shelby Smith, 
founder of Jim and Eat Crickets, Jiminy Crickets, if you say it really quickly, Shelby, thanks so much for joining today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Shelby, tell me a little bit about your background in agriculture, because I know you are really diversifying, getting out there, doing something really unique, but you started your background from a very traditional farm, it sounds like. Yeah, so I grew up on a, you know, traditional row crop operation just northeast of of the Ames area there. Um, But growing up, you know, I didn't really have any interest in in being an ag or or staying around in Iowa even. Um, So I grew up playing basketball and all sorts of sports and eventually went off to college and and played basketball in college out at St. Joe's in Philadelphia. Because like I said, I, I wanted nothing to do with Iowa, didn't want to stay in Iowa. Um, so went out there to Philadelphia, played basketball, got a finance degree, graduated from there and then went overseas and continued my playing career in Ireland and got a master's degree in finance over at Trinity college in Dublin. And then decided to stick around in Ireland for a little while, went and got a job on an equity, equity derivatives trading desk at a Canadian bank there in Dublin. Um, because I had a bunch of finance degrees and I thought I better use them. So I stuck around in Dublin, did that for a couple of years, but found myself really, really unsatisfied. And so started having conversations with my parents about, you know, what I was going to do and maybe coming back to the farm and, and learning how to do that kind of stuff. And so handed in my notice at the bank and moved back to Iowa the fall of 2017 and started helping my dad with harvest right away. Um, So it was trial by fire, learning how to drive tractors and do all that stuff that I refused to do as I grew up. And, um, you know, then once that season was over, my dad and I started having conversations about what I was going to do going forward and the potential for some sort of a a niche ag idea, whatever it was going to be. And um, ultimately, I landed on crickets. (laughs) Yeah. And you have that's such an interesting backstory. I think a lot of people respect or can understand, feel what you're going through and deciding that, okay, maybe the farm is a place that I could come back to and I can diversify and do kind of my own thing. But how did you decide or how did you land upon crickets? Yeah. So believe it or not, it was uh, just listening to podcasts. Um, Eating bugs came up on three different podcasts that I listened to that were totally unrelated in the month of December of 2017. So that kind of got it on my radar. And then I started just checking around and into things. It was a really cold winter that first winter, and I hadn't been through an Iowa winter in many years. So I was stuck inside doing anything I could to not run outside. So I think I went down the rabbit hole of eating bugs, which is entomophagy, and found an article about a woman raising crickets for human consumption on the 1st of January of 2018. And um, I sent it to both my parents and said, hey, you know, remember that niche you guys were talking about I should find? I think I found it. And um, they they didn't tell me no. They encouraged me to do some research and see what I could find. And um, being unsatisfied with what I found on the Internet for, for resources for raising crickets at scale for human consumption, I decided my best way to learn was to just buy 10,000 crickets 10 days later. So then I was off and running. (laughs) Okay. So you bought crickets and then how did buying crickets from the farm turn into the brand Jiminy Crickets, which is an awesome, awesome name, by the way. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Some people get it quicker than others. It's one of those things you got to say it out loud to really 
um, to really get the pun right away. But, um, you know, buying the crickets was the first step. After that, it was figuring out what what I was going to do with them. Because I don't know about you, but up until two years ago, I didn't know how to cook crickets very well. So that was step one, figure out how to cook with crickets so that I could figure out what I could do with them. So it was figuring out what kind of products I wanted to produce and then possibly more importantly, where I was going to sell those products. So I started off selling at farmer's markets. So the local farmer's markets here, farmer's market here in Ames. I didn't go to Des Moines for the first year because I just knew I wouldn't be able to deal with the volume of people. I mean, I was confident in my ability to figure out how to raise crickets, but I knew I couldn't raise them, raise that many that fast. So started selling them at the Ames farmer's market and in the year of 2018, so that first year of production, I actually ended up selling out of every single cricket I raised in that year. Um, so I, I really cut my teeth in the in the farmers markets. And this past summer, I did Ames Farmers Market, Des Moines, Iowa City, kind of all over the place, trying to get some more exposure. Um, while I still grew my supply of crickets and figured out how I was going to really scale the business. And so. Walk us through the process. Is it called, I mean, do you call it growing crickets, raising crickets? How do you do that? What does that look like? Yeah, so I probably use those two terms interchangeably. Um, I suppose people in livestock would, would say raising, whereas, you know, if you're doing a row crop, you're saying growing. Uh, I would I fall somewhere in between. So I use those two interchangeably. Um, it's about a between 45 and 54 day process from hatched cricket, which is called a pinhead to a fully grown cricket, which I harvest and then turn into my product. So it's just like any other animal husbandry though. You have babies, you raise those babies, you eventually harvest those babies to be used as food. Um, so it, it's, quite a short life cycle. Uh, I have daily chores just like anybody else who has a hog barn or has cows or anything like that. They need to be fed. They need to be watered. You know, they need to be checked that the conditions are correct. They do like a warm temperature. So um, where some of these hog barns might be a little chilly here in the winter in Iowa, it's always 86 degrees and sunny in my cricket barn. So. And so are you raising them in a like a greenhouse or a barn with a bunch of lights? What does the setup look like? Yeah, so we actually, well, originally my first 10,000 crickets and what I grew from that to up to about a quarter of a million crickets every 54 days was actually started in the break room of my dad's shop because it was double insulated for noise. Um, so that made it ideal for heating, obviously, and keeping that temperature relatively constant. Uh, but after I sold out, you know, in that first year, I really started to look at what I wanted to do to expand. Um, you know, we had a couple different options, put up a building, like pour a foundation, put up a building and, and go that route or look at some sort of a mobile structure. So shipping containers, that kind of thing. What I eventually landed on was I took an old junker single wide mobile home trailer that was going to go to the landfill. And we took that and uh, stripped it down to its frame and essentially built a well-insulated Morton building on wheels that was to the dimensions that I wanted to raise the crickets. And then each of the cricket houses are actually these 50-gallon plastic storage tubs that you can buy at your local Walmart um, with some egg flats, fancy chicken feed, which is what they eat, so a watering source, 
And then once they start chirping, I give them um, some sort of a breeding substrate so that the females can crawl up there and lay their eggs. So all of my crickets that I have now, so I turn about 2 million crickets every 45 days, all of those crickets came from my original 10,000. So oh each female lays. Yeah, each <laughs> female million. lays between, correct, each female lays between 5 and 10 eggs per day. So um, things can get out of hand pretty quick. Holy cow, that's a lot of crickets. So then you're taking these 2 million crickets every 45, 50 days. I got to ask, what Mm -hmm. do they taste like and what do you do with the crickets? Yeah, so um, I last, like I said, the past two summers, I sold them exclusively at farmer's markets because I didn't have a licensed food processing facility. And so under Iowa Cottage Food Laws, I was allowed to... um, to sell my food products at farmer's markets without having a license. So I eventually obviously wanted to get on grocery store shelves, be able to sell online, do all that kind of stuff. So that what was required to take that step was some sort of a a license processing facility. So I ended up buying a building in the small town of Collins, Iowa, back in end of June, beginning of July. And we gutted that and turned it into my processing facility. So essentially put a commercial kitchen in. That got licensed as a food processing facility with the state of Iowa the day before Thanksgiving of last year. And then, um, so I was able to launch my online store and do all of that stuff. So what I make out of them, well, first step obviously is to kill them. So I kill them by putting them in the freezer, you know, just like the winter. What happens to any, any other insects that are not in a warm spot? Um, so kill the, freeze them to kill them, and then they are dehydrated. So they're dehydrated, kind of think about like making beef jerky sort of a thing, and then either ground into a powder to be mixed into energy bars, or the powder can also be sold as is, or I leave them whole, and then I toss them in, toss them in seasoning, and then package them and sell them that way. Uh, so those are the three main things that, that I make out of them. The energy bars taste a lot like... Uh, some common energy bars that you've probably had, like a Lara bar or an RX bar, um, things like that, that are sort of fruit and nut kind of bars. The actual roasted crickets, I I always compare them as a cross between a sunflower seed and a corn nut. They're crunchy. If I didn't tell you it was a cricket and you just popped it down the hatch, you you wouldn't guess that it's a cricket. It's just real crispy, real crunchy, pretty airy and light. and then they're seasoned up to all different flavors. And so when you look at the market for buying cricket products, I mean, I mm-hmm. assume they're high in protein, obviously. Can you tell us a little bit more about the nutritional value and then what marketplaces really have enjoyed eating crickets or are, are actively purchasing crickets? Right. So they are 70% protein by dry weight have more iron than spinach, more calcium than milk. They're a good source of vitamin B12. They have omega-6s and omega-3s. And then although people oftentimes don't draw the line of animals to include insects, you know, insects are part of the animal kingdom. Three out of every four animal species is an insect. Uh, So they are a complete protein with all nine essential amino acids in a bioavailable form that we are capable of, of utilizing. So they are quite the nutritional powerhouse. 
And then as far as markets go, it is a very wide array. So, you know, I, I did say that I launched my online store just back in December, and here we are two months later. Uh, I haven't spent any advertising dollars to, like, try to reach people in different states or anything like that. And uh, despite that, I have shipped crickets to 29 states already since December. So it's kind of mm-hmm. crazy um, with like I said, a wide array of demographics, wide array of of ages. You know, I have, there's these two little twin girls that just turned two years old that are uh, every weekend customers at the Des Moines Farmers Market. And their favorite thing to say to their parents is more bug, more bug. That's the way they ask for them. Um, All the way up to my oldest customer that I am aware of that has eaten the crickets is 101 years old. So um, it really is a wide array across a whole, all different kinds of kinds of people have eaten these crickets and are really enjoying them. Wow, that's really, really neat. Shelby, final question for you. As you look at diversifying the farm, we talk about that a lot in agriculture and it feels like now is the time that we're going to have to really figure out what our farm is going to do to diversify so we can continue to sustain that into the future. What advice do you have for the people that are at that point in their farm? Yeah, I would say definitely, you know, weigh your options and weigh your risks. Don't necessarily think inside the box of what everybody else has already thought of. Uh, Definitely go out to the fringes. I'm not saying everybody should jump into the fringe and and go for it that way. But check out some of these, these crazier that maybe have already launched on the coast, but in places like the Midwest and, and traditional farm country may be have competitive advantages for, you know, supplies, for ability to scale, for, you know, a whole host of different things. I would say just examine all of that. Well, awesome. We certainly appreciate you joining today. Shelby, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, again, a big thank you there to Shelby Smith. Not sure, Mike, that I am excited to try crickets, but I think it's very interesting that she's found a new marketplace. She's found one that seems to be working for her, and that's really what you got to do at these pivotal times in agriculture. Hey, if somebody wants to fry up some crickets, barbecue up some crickets, crush up some crickets and make a protein, I have no problem growing those crickets, and then they can do the dirty work, and it seems that's where Shelby's head is at, and hey, get paid while you can. Absolutely. Take advantage of that market while you can. Absolutely. And folks, we talk with all sorts of folks throughout the ag industry here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. You want to get caught up and hear stories of other innovators in our field, check out our past episodes. Visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. Listen to our past episodes as well as get connected with the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. They're innovators and there are people willing to push the envelope and the folks from all the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network talk to those very people. And of course, we want to hear from you. Visit us on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm on Instagram now, Delaney Howell. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't. You're so fancy. I'm a grammar. I'm getting hooked on it. I tell you what, but listeners, check it out. Find us there. Tell us your thoughts. Bring us up to speed. How does planting season look in your area? When does it look like you might be getting those planter wheels rolling? With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.